0: All right, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul was reading for us earlier. I have entitled this this morning, Obedience and the Whole Armor of God. And Paul has already read our main text about putting on the whole armor of God. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, But this morning will be the final chapter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. It primarily deals with submission and obedience between children and their parents. And then it deals with parents dealing with their children. Uh, It also goes on and talks about the relationship one should have between an employee and his employer and how they're to treat one another. We'll look at that. Chapters four through six um, uh, deals with putting off the old life and walking in this new life after you've accepted the Lord. Now, for you old timers, we take, we understand it. We've been doing it for a while. But remember who he's writing to: these uh, new Gentile um, believers. And now he's concluding it with um, a Bible. Sp- study about the reality that we're in spiritual war. And so he is, chapters 4 through 6 deal with the practical ABC teachings of the Christian walk. Especially this morning, being spiritually equipped with God's weapons of spiritual warfare, the reality of demonic forces who, st- who seek to destroy and attack you, and how to deal with it. So let's begin by going to chapter 6, looking at the first three verses. And it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Just turn a couple pages to your right and get get to the book of Colossians, and we're looking at verse 20, and it says basically the same thing, but um, it adds a little bit to it. Colossians 3.20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, what is being quoted here in chapter 6, verse 2, is actually one of the Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to have us go back and look at the Ten Commandments this morning. You need to go to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And we read in verse 12, this is where it comes from. Exodus 20, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, the first, verses 1 through 11 of the Ten Commandments, deals with man's relationship to God. And then from verses 12 to 17 of the Ten Commandments, it deals with man's relationship with his fellow man. And the first, as it relates to relating to another person, The first one in verse 12 is honor your father and your mother. This is a commandment. uh, That your days may be long upon um, the earth. So, growing up, um, I was obedient in most things. Things like be be home before it gets dark. Remember that one? Um, Um... do your chores, cut the grass, don't fight with your brothers and sisters. And um, I did pretty good most of the time, and I was obedient. But <laughs> you knew there, there was a butt coming, right? But then there's times I wasn't obedient, and I knew I was in trouble when my mom would throw in my middle name, <laughs> Dwight Dean Deauville, come here. I don't know if your parents threw in the middle name to make sure that you know you're about to get the splice water in my case. Or how about, "If I have to stop this car how many of you have heard of that one? And worst of all, wait till your father gets home." And he would say, "Son, this is for your own good." And I'm saying, I'm thinking right, this is for my own good. But what he was really saying was true from a parent's perspective, meaning if I don't correct you, you're going to grow up to be a spoiled, undisciplined brat, and therefore the necessity of being obedient to your parents. And sometimes I was, and sometimes I wasn't. I think the one that sticks out most in my mind is mom told me to do something. I said, I don't have to do that anymore because I'm taller than you are now. And she let it go, didn't say a word, until dad got home. <laughs> and then he, uh, let's just say he corrected me his way. <laughs> so, I have an Old Testament picture that um, shows what happened when parents do not discipline their children. And I'd like you to turn to First Samuel chapter 3 and tell you a little bit, Uh, we're looking at verses 11 through 21. Um, We're talking about Eli's sons here and how he brought them up. If you go to um, verse, if you go to chapter two and look at verse 12, it says, now the sons of Eli were corrupt, they did not know the Lord. And verse 17, it says, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They did not care for the things of God. They weren't taught by their parents. Now, if you look at chapter 3, verses 11, it says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever because for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. What does that mean? No discipline. And as a result of not restraining the children, Uh, We have this uh, Old Testament type uh, that uh, no disciplined and God brought judgment as a result of it. Let's bring it up to um, today. My generation and the way we were brought up, people my age, and um, it's different today in parenting. Not with everybody, and I'm not looking at anybody in particular here. But today, parents want to be friends instead of being parents. I want to be a friend to my child. And um, instead of being a parent to them, they want to be a friend to them. No, parents need to be parents. Good place for an amen. They have their own friends. And, um, well, I could never discipline my son. I can't imagine... Taking him over my knee and paddling him—I mean, he could—he could—he could call uh, the social services and have me arrested, and actually get that threat thrown thrown back at him. So parents are backing off and um, n- not disciplining, and then simply want to. Uh, uh, I can give you a good suggestion: grounding's Still part of word, but I'll tell you what—one stronger than that. I'm going to take your phone away for a week. <laughs> Throw that one at them. (laughs) And, but my point is simple. You're not their friends. Your job, according to Proverbs, um, and I'm gonna turn to it real quick. It's Proverbs 22. That tells us, let me find it real quick. Proverbs 22, verse six. It says, train up a child in the way he should go And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I am here this morning to tell you that it's not the Sunday school department's job to bring your children up in the ways of the Lord. That's your job. Yeah, they should be in Sunday school. You should bring them to church. Jesus said it was his custom to be in the synagogue. And we should have our own customs. And that's church, Bible studies, fellowship, uh, bringing the kids to Sunday school, But that's not where they're going to learn it. They're going to learn it um, from you. You're the one who's supposed to train your child up in the way of the Lord. If you you let them do their own thing, they will um, grow up to be spoiled and undisciplined, just like Eli's son. So correction is still part of parenting. It's your job. We could just leave that as a Bible study this morning it's important for the times in which we live but let's make our way back to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 basically is answered in Proverbs 22 and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up into training and admonition of the Lord. Well that's exactly what Proverbs 22 verse 6 says. Train up a child. When he's young, oh, he might, you know, what happens to him when they turn 13 and 17? Nobody knows. <laughs> you know, they just, they're out there somewhere <laughs> trying to figure this thing out. And so they may drift. But if you have laid the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're gonna get to a point in their life somewhere where they're gonna remember that. And they're gonna go back to that. When they get old, then they'll come back to what they know. Um, because there's answers that only the scriptures and the Lord can give. All right, let's look at verses uh, five through nine. Deals with um, employee, employer um, relationship. Servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. You could put your boss in there. And with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to Christ, notice this, not with eye service. Oh, I hope the boss is watching because I'm really doing a good job for him today. As man pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with, with good will doing service as, as to the Lord and not to men. So who's your boss when you go to work? Your boss? No, the Lord is. Who do you work for? Well, I work for the Lord. And I'm not doing it to be a man pleaser, uh, to get brownie points with the boss. No, we go to work with the attitude that I'm a Christian. And so therefore, I want to do my work before the Lord and let Him see that and know who I'm working for. Um, Verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord whether he is slave or free. It sort of falls under the category of don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Um, um, Because you're to do things before the Lord that nobody knows about, and therefore you will not lose your reward in heaven. If um, you do your works before men and they're acknowledged, and they're acknowledging you for your, for your work while well, you get your reward there. All right, um, verse nine, and you masters, now we're talking to the bosses here, if you're a boss and you have employees, do the same thing to them, giving up threatening. In other words, if you don't get this job, let, let, let's make it modern. If you don't get this jab, then you're not gonna have a job. That's a threat. And there's people here that have lost their jobs because that was the ultimatum that was given to them. Here, Paul is telling the, uh, the bosses in Ephesus, no threatening, don't go around threatening them, knowing that your own master, also in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. You might be the boss down here, but God is no respecter of people, whether you're a boss or an employee. He deals with everybody the same, another good place for an amen. Okay, so verses five through nine. Now, therefore, uh, the thing that I would stress is verse seven: that we do it as to the Lord, not to men. So, if you're going to work on on Monday, you go in with the attitude: well, I'm going to go work for the Lord today, and uh, and uh, be the best witness that I can be. That brings us to our text where Paul read for us. Um, The main part of the study this morning is um, saying finally my brethren. So he's wrapping up his letter to the Ephesians but there's one more thing that he feels is very important that they need to know. Finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Um, Let's just start with that much. He starts out with finally, or in other words, I'm finishing up the book. In conclusion, be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might, uh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil As it says, for our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the worldly rulers of this darkness, against a spiritual host of evil in heavenly places. There's a real spiritual warfare where the devil wants to take you out, period. He is the God of this world. We shouldn't be surprised. America is very, very unique among all the nations in the world. Um, and, um, but that's changing quickly um, in the direction that we're headed. What in the world is Paul talking about here? He's talking about spiritual wickedness, about that which is satanic. Nothing that is coming to, now that he's coming to the end of the epistle, he says, in conclusion, Be strengthened in the Lord and with the power of his might. You cannot overcome the devil in your own strength and your own power. I want to make a point of this here. That uh, the weapons of our warfare, I'll give you an Old Testament example here of putting on the whole armor of God and we'll get to the specifics of that in just a little bit. But the idea here is doing it and let the Lord do it through you than you doing it with your own strike. That's the whole idea. You need to put on the whole armor of God. And I want to show you an Old Testament picture of this of, um, that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. So let's go back to that. And um, a little bit of the background here. Um, Israel's fighting against the Philistines And when we visit this place, it shows the two hills where Israel was and where the Philistines were. And with the Philistines they had a giant whose name was Goliath. And nobody was fighting because everybody was afraid to go to war against Goliath. And so the background here is David's brother, they're in the army. So um, David was taking care of the sheep and he heard about the war and um, uh, David's father, uh, Jesse, said to him, I want you to take these cheese and loaves and take them to your brother who are in the army. And so when he gets there, his oldest brother, um, Eliab, his oldest brother heard that he spoke to the men. He was angry, in verse 28 this is, and he came against David and said, why did you come out here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and your insolence of your heart. You just wanted to see the battle. And David said, <laughs> being a younger brother, what have I done now? <laughs> He's on, big brother was always on, what did I do this time? What have I done now? And then he heard this talk about this giant. And um, David's thinking to himself, why aren't you guys going after these guys? The, the Lord is the one who fights our battles. We don't fight our battles. And they said, well, it's because of that 13 you know, foot guy over there named Goliath. And nobody's, nobody's going after him. Everybody's staying here. And David looked at Goliath. The rest of Israel were looking and look how big that guy is. David looks at him and goes, look how small that guy is in the eyes of the Lord. He's nothing. I'll take him out. It's no big deal. And if you read down here, he, um, of course, they're going to say you can't fight him. But David said, well, in verse 35, I went out one day when a bear took a lamb, and I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from the mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed, I've killed lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. He has defiled the armies of the living God. This is is walk in a park. Let's get it over with. So the reason I brought you back here is how do we fight our battles? Well, if we use our own resources, our own armor, so to speak, it can can become very clumsy. And the reason I brought you here is to show you what happens next. Verse 37, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, well, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, okay, go, and the Lord be with you. (laughs) A brave Saul but he thought I better help David out here a little bit. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword to his armor and I like this, and he tried to walk. (laughs) You know, Saul um, was one of the tallest and best looking men in Israel and um, David is still a boy at this point and he's putting on Saul's armor and David fastened his sword and I like this and he tried to walk and then to test them and David said to Saul I cannot walk with these I have not tested them so David took them off and then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them. We actually go to this very spot. The stream is still there. And I tell the people when we go there, here's your cheapest uh, souvenir that you can buy in Israel. Uh, you could say you brought this rock back from where David picked it out of the stream and how he slew Goliath with it. So my point is... Putting on the whole armor of God is spiritual, not physical. We can't do it if we try to do it on our own. They're not tested, We can't walk with them, doesn't fit, and it's just not the way that you fight a spiritual battle. All right, let's make our way back to um, Ephesians. And then let's see... The enemy whom the Christian is to fight is not flesh and blood. The enemy is spiritual and uh, the warfare is spiritual. That's why we need spiritual power. We have identified the enemy. Now Paul begins to identify the arsenal which is available for defense. Nowhere is the believer urged to attack in advance. The key to this entire section is the phrase to stand. The Bible speaks of believers as pilgrims. As pilgrims, we are to walk through the world. The Bible speaks of us as witnesses, and we are to go to the ends of the earth. And as athletes, we are to run. We are to run with our eyes fixed upon Lord Jesus Christ, and let us, as it says, let us run the race with patience, um, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now in 14 and 15, it says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It says, stand therefore. This is the fourth time that he gives this exhortation to the believer. This is the only place that I find Paul laying it on the line and speaking like a sergeant. Earlier he would say things like, I beseech you. Uh, But now he gives this as a command to stand. Not only are we to be in a standing position but we are also to have on certain armor to protect ourselves. We are not to be outwitted by the wiles of the devil. We are to be ready for the attack. Which brings us to 16 and 17. It talks about the different um, armors and the importance of, of standing. And 16 and 17, and above all, taking the shield of faith, which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Uh, the fiery darts of the wicked one come fast and furious, and they're coming um, to continue to come. The only thing that will beat them down is the shield of faith. And um, but this is a shield that is spiritual, not physical. But I got thinking about this, and um, I asked Judy, I said, what was that movie where the Romans came out with their shield and they formed a turtle and they went out to battle? And she says, "Um, well, I thought that was Spartacus. And so I stayed up all last night uh, watching Spartacus, and there is no Roman turtle in the movie Spartacus. But I really—it was, was the old Kurt Douglas one, you know—and it has a—it's a great movie to watch. Sad ending, but um, um, we're still trying to figure out what movie was it where they had the what at nap The 300. Uh, by the way, I just want to let you guys know that the name of the movie is The 300. That's where they, that, I'll, I'll show you a picture of it. You can put it up on screen. This is a Roman turtle. And when, when you shoot arrows, the enemy says uh, he shoots his deadly darts. Well, that ours is our faith in prayer. But car, in, in a, in a cardinal sense, it made me think of this Roman turtle. And so um, I knew all the time it was the 300. I just wanted to check out and make sure if you guys were really aware of it or if you watch Spartacus or not. Or Some of you are going to go home and you're going to watch Spartacus, I know it. But anyway, that's the whole thing. You're completely shielded in, and they call it a turtle. And you can shoot arrows at that thing all day long, and it's not going to penetrate. So I thought that would be a good example of Roman army and the turtle. And then in verse 17, it says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now here's the armament. The helmet of salvation. Well, the helmet protects the head. And God does appeal to the mind of men. I recognize that he appeals to the heart, but God also appeals to the intellect. Throughout the scripture, God uses reasons with men. In one case, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be wool. So I'm gonna have an illustration of of the helmet of salvation and being wise and know who you're talking to. And I need to take you to Acts 24 and 26 for this. So let's go back to the book of Acts. And uh, look, at got 20, 24. That's one verse in 24 that I wanted to point out here. No, this is 25. Let's read the first couple verses of... Um, I don't have my verse down for that. Anyway, in verses twenty-five, we're we're going to deal with um, um, Festus, who was the governor at at the time. So, chapter twenty-five. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priests and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day Sitting in the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now we go to Caesarea, and when we go there, um, the amphitheater is still there. And it's a beautiful sight because it faces the Mediterranean Sea. And right in a place where I give the Bible study is a place that is at a spot. It's the judgment seat. And if you go to verse 23, it says, Now the king... The next day, King Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium. Well, when we go to Israel, we give this Bible study. And I say, well, it's 2,000 years later, but this is where uh, Paul um, stood before Agrippa, and um, we, we find, as he's standing before Agrippa, And I think it's in 26. Let's go to chapter 26. Again, we're thinking about putting on the helmet, which refers to the intellect and reasoning. And here we have in the first three verses, then Agrippa said to Paul, so you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hands and answered for himself. And he says I think myself happy King Agrippa because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all things of which I'm accused of by the Jews. Especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. What's he doing? Well he's buttering him up. I know how smart you are. And he's getting to know the person that he's witnessing too. What does Paul say? Become all things to all people, so that you might win them. He wants to. He wants to deal with an Agrippa on the same level, so that when Paul does, and we have from verses four through eighteen, Paul just gives his testimony. He tells us how he was um, um, persecuting the church, and that he was on his way to Damascus. Um, and the Lord appeared to him in verse 14. And Saul said, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he goes on and he witnesses to Agrippa. And what's happening through this is he's drawing him out. He's using his intellect, his reason. And let's pick it up. After Paul has given his testimony and laid it all out, Agrippa is getting awful close to becoming a Christian. Let's pick it up in verse 19. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, therefore what? Well, I saw the Lord. I persecuted the church. And um, he said, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared there first to those at Damascus and in Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. Therefore, I having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing reasoning both to the small and the great saying no other thing than those things which the prophets and Moses said would come. Now here we have the sword, which is what the word of God. We have the intellect in a sword, and now he has his. Um, he uses the word of God. He quotes the prophets. Well, it's not, It'll be implied at the end here, but the more Paul is talking to Agrippa, the more Agrippa is sitting on the side, right on, on the edge, taking it all in that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. That's what the governor was saying. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak words of truth and reason, and there come let us reason together. He's using his intellect at this point. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows all these things for I am convinced that none of these things escaped his attention. And Agrippa is thinking to himself, yep, yeah, that's true, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. So now he's really getting him, and now The king finally speaks, and he says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but all who are here today, might become both almost and altogether just as I am, except for these chains that I'm wearing right now. Yeah, I wish all you guys had what I had. And the king of great grip is thinking to himself, it's all true. But you know what that means? I probably cannot be king anymore. I'd probably have to let that job go. And um, he says, you almost persuade me. He's saying that what he's saying is true. But basically, we call it counting the cost. Didn't the Lord say before you give your life to Christ, you better count the cost? Because it's going to cost you. you got to have to die daily. And like I always like to say, the bad thing about dying daily is it's so daily. Because <laughs> you do it every morning. And then you have to pick up your cross. And um, here is an example that I see where the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit are being applied. Know who you're speaking to. Become all things to them. Get them to open up. Get them to say, okay, you're here now, Paul, verse one. Um, Speak for yourself. Well, that's all Paul needed to hear. And he went for it. And he said, let me just tell you what happened to me first. And um, in men's prayer, somebody was talking about their salvation. And they're they're still waiting for their road to Damascus experience. (laughs) Most people... When you pray to accept the Lord, you simply say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I believe the gospel. I believe you died and rose again, and you died for me. You gave me your righteousness, and you took my sin. And I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. And sometimes you have a road to Damascus experience. And sometimes you believe it by faith, and you're saved, and you don't have any feelings and you're waiting for the tingles to come and and all that and they don't come, well, you're still saved. How do you get saved? Paul said to the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, period. Well, in that case, there was a road to Damascus experience because um, there was an earthquake and the chains fell off Paul and so on and so forth. And um, to the point that it caused the guard to ask the question, what must I do? What do, I, what do I need to do to be saved? Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and you will be. I could tell you a lot of stories about friends of mine that have had Road to Damascus experiences, but uh, we would be here an awful long time. So with that being said, for that example, let's go back to um, and start to finish up Versus, um, I got one more picture here of fighting and, um, your way or fighting the Lord's way. What we've read thus far is that we're in a spiritual war and that we're to fight using the Lord as our strength. And, um... Goes on praying always with all supplication being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. I have an Old Testament picture here that I've been wrestling with and I do have enough time. I've got a lot of time, man. Um, Maybe I will tell some of those divine appointment stories. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 24 It's the last chapter of Samuel. And let me set this up a little bit. If I would ask you, what were the sins of King David? Um, Most of you would say uh, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he killed Uriah the Hittite. And that would be the end of it. That was not David's greatest sin. Um, There was consequences his son that was from Bathsheba, the Lord took that son. Great scripture, a little sidetrack here about what happens to, to babies, um, even in the womb. Uh, what, what happens to them? Well, when David's baby died from Bathsheba, he was praying and he said, I'm going to go to him but he can't come back to me. And it's one of the places in the Bible that teaches that babies are in heaven. We also call it the age of accountability. Where is that line that God draws that says, okay, now you're accountable. But until you're aged, you know the difference between right and wrong, you go to heaven because God is just. And um, I know the millions, I think it's between 50 and 60 million that we've aborted since um, Roe v. Wade but um, that's terrible we deserve judgment for it we probably believe we'll get it but the fact of the matter is they're they're in heaven bottom line and here is David's greatest sin but let me set this up there's 150 psalms David wrote 70 of them and when you think about David what is he always exhorting you to do Usually three things. Praise the Lord. Worship the Lord. The Lord is your strength. Don't put your strength in any men because the Lord is your strength. How many times have you read that in the Psalms? I need to know that you're tracking with me on this one. So David was exhorting the people, don't put your trust in men, put your trust in the Lord. So how? Do, what's his last and greatest sin? Chapter 24, It said again, uh, let's pick it up. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against him. Go number Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, I want you to go out through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. What's he doing? He wants to know how big his army is. And uh, if we gotta go to war, Uh, I want to know how many we got in the military here. And Joab said, bad idea. And Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundredfold more than there are and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord desire the thing? So they got in a debate about it. Joab and David are arguing. And David Finally, had to say, Joab, I'm the king, you're not, go number the people. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, against the captains of the army. And so, Joab and the captains of the army went out in the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they counted them all, and it gives the places that they went. So in verse 8, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. They were taking a census. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of people to the king, and there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the swords, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And what was David's reaction? Verse 10, David's heart condemned him after he heard the number of people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Basically, he's saying, I've lived my whole life telling people that the battle's the Lord's. That's why they opened up with that song this morning. The battle belongs to the Lord. And that's what David was all about, trusting the Lord. That that Philistine he's a little grasshopper eyes of the lord that's the lord's fight and after he did this he's talking he's giving himself a good talking to let's put it that way his heart condemned him everything i believe in i've done just the opposite i'm looking to men to be my strength instead of the lord and he was so convicted that the lord says all right now i'm going to bring judgment I'll give you a chance. Um, you pick, but uh, because of your sin, uh, the Lord, he prayed to the Lord, take away his iniquity. And David arose in the morning, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet of Gad, David, seer, saying, "Go tell David, thus says the Lord, I'll offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you." So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, "Well." Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months from your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of plague in the land? Now consider and see what one you want to pick. And he says, I don't want to pick any of them. Give it to the Lord. Let him pick. And he says, because he knows that the Lord, um, um, well, I'll just read it. Verse 14, David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let it fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great and do not let me fall into the hand of man. And so what happened was, so the Lord set a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. Why? Because everything that David said was true And he did just the opposite. And it was sort of a test, I believe, that the Lord was giving to David. And um, as a result of him counting the number of people, 70,000 people died. This was David's greatest sin. Not Bathsheba. Not not the killing of Uriah the Hittite. This one right here. And as a result... um, uh, we have this great judgment, and this is how uh, Second Samuel ends with this this um, um, sentencing. And let's go back, and we'll finish up. I wrestled with using that as an illustration all all weekend, last night, and I said, no, it's too too good of an illustration um, because, as we read here the warfare and how to go about it. And David is the perfect example of looking to men instead of the Lord. When our whole Bible study this morning is the reality that we're in a war. We're in a spiritual war. How are you gonna fight it? By putting on this armor here that we talked about this morning. So now he's getting ready to say goodbye. He's been dealing with the church of Ephesus for these six chapters. He talks about the importance of prayer and then he talks about, and he asks for prayer for himself, and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That should be every one of our prayers here this morning. Lord, it's all hitting the fan right now. I mean, Ezekiel 38 could happen tomorrow. And I have friends and loved ones That, uh, yeah, but if I do that, they're going to get mad at me. And there's going to be division. And when they say that, you say, well, I didn't think you knew the Bible that well. Because that's exactly what Jesus said. Don't think that I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to separate a father from his son and a mother from a daughter. And in one's own family, there will be those that will be with me. And in one's own family, there will be those who against me you know what I'm talking about when that conversation gets up and there's believers and unbelievers, it gets awkward really quick and usually the relationship the ones that don't know the Lord say please don't go there <laughs> let's not talk about that don't want to talk about that because like Agrippa they might almost be persuaded by the way Agrippa almost went to heaven a grip is not in heaven. He, he did not. He heard the truth, but he did not receive the truth. And the sort of the spirit here that I'd also um, want to point out without going to it is when it cuts. Acts chapter two, I won't have you turn there. Stephen gets up and, our, 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 uh, yeah, Stephen gets up. He preaches the gospel. Now I'm done. Seeing that my Bible automatically opened, I better make sure that I'm getting it right. Um, Peter. Uh, Peter gets up, and uh, when the day of Pentecost had come, and he preaches the gospel to him. And I'll read verse 37. After he had gotten done, when he had heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's what the word of God does. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, Ben and brethren, what should we do? And so we talked about earlier, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we do close this up, going back here, this boldness comes as a result, what was Pentecost all about? Being filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's this deacon, he's just a deacon, um, and Peter was just one of the disciples, and he had boldness. And that's what Paul is now praying for here, because he's still in chains. This is written from Rome, remember? And he's sending it For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. My friends, let me exhort you be bold. Know who you're talking to. Use your intellect. Use your reasoning. Use whatever, whatever you need. And then he has a conclusion. Paul in closing up his book to uh, the Ephesians by telling them the importance of prayer, being watchful, and being bold. Now in his conclusion, he says, but that you may also know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, he'll make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, and all God's people said it, amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, as we make our way through your word, chapter by chapter and book by book, we're grateful that you deal with every issue of life, how to raise our children, how to work before you when we go to work on Monday morning that we work before you and not our bosses, and for the bosses not to take advantage of their position because they are the boss, Um, learning how to train up our children in in the ways, and then leaving them with the reality that we are in a war against the God of this world who wants to take us out, and that we need to be equipped with the full and whole armor of God, and Lord, we do pray for boldness. We thank you for the grace. We pray that you'd open up doors for us, opportunities to share with people um, the importance and um, help us remember King Agrippa, believing but almost being persuaded. Lord, give us wisdom to know who we're talking to and actually bring them to that place where they're wanting and ready to accept you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of uh, Ephesians and pray for next week as we start a new book. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.